Welcome to another epic episode of Kazi's Audio Experience. This is the podcast where we're not only going to sharpen our technical skills, but we will learn how to become profitable as filmmakers. And guys, it will mean the world to me if you leave a five-star review and subscribe to this channel for more awesome content. Let's get into it. What's going on, guys? This is Kazi. Welcome back to another live. It's been a while. It's been a long, long time that we did this. So it's happening. I'm super stoked. And today we're going to be talking about answering your questions. All right, so let's just jump right in. First question is, what is your favorite tool in Resolve? Now, I'm, I'm going to attack it in a couple of different ways. So first, my favorite tool in Resolve will be primaries, which is your lift gamma gain, because I feel like so much can be done just by using your lift gamma gain that it's absolutely unreal, okay? So that right there would be my main tool, if you will, but let's just attack it from a different perspective, which will be my favorite OFX in Resolve. And a lot of you probably already know the answer to that. One of my favorite um, OFX in Resolve is the glow effect because there is so many there's so many different looks that you can create just by using the glow effect that it's unreal. So like it just genuinely changes the personality uh, or the look DNA of your um, you know style that you're going for. So glow, hands down, if you wanna know how to use it, you can just randomly pick any of my videos on YouTube and I know for a fact that I'll probably show you how to use glow in a particular way in that uh, whatever look that you know it is that we're trying to create. So second question, Asus HDR workflow for YouTube delivery. So here's the thing, right? Like whether you're working in Asus, whether you're working in DaVinci Wide Gamut or color, you know, non-managed uh, pipeline, it doesn't matter because at the end of the day, you're gonna be telling Resolve that, hey, what do I wanna export this to? So uh, I'm exporting it to Rec. 709, right? Like once you, uh, add that you know element in, it's gonna get exported to Rec. 709, whether you're grading in ASUS, like I said, or DaVinci White Gamut or any other uh, color management. Somebody asks, your thoughts on grading CineStyle footage from low-end Canon cameras. So CineStyle was something, I think it was from Magic Lantern, if I'm not mistaken, back, back, back in the days. I'm talking about 2005, 2006, when the Canon 5D first came out. So people still use it uh, with low-end Canon cameras. You can, but I don't necessarily know that there's gonna be a good, proper log to Rec. 709 conversion for CineStyle because CineStyle is sort of like a made-up log space. It's not necessarily a log space. It's sort of like going in your camera and turning all the sharpness down and turning all the contrast down kind of thing, but definitely more sophisticated than that. So my approach uh, would be to create a custom curve. So your custom curve is gonna be basically your Rec. 709 conversion, um, and then you can just go in. So that's gonna be like your, you know, Rec. 709 curve that you're gonna create, a custom curve at the end of your pipeline, and then go back and then, you know, basically do pre-clip and grade um, in those nodes. And if you guys wanna learn more about that, I have tons of content link in bio where you can learn like a proper node tree structure, which is essential when it comes to color grading. Uh, another question is requirements for Windows PC to run Resolve. So here's the thing. I would say 
at least have about eight to 10 cores. And, and I'm talking about like running Resolve comfortably, okay? You gotta have at least eight to 10 cores. More is better, 16 core would be ideal. Uh, in terms of RAM, uh, Resolve is RAM hungry, okay? So you got to give it all the RAM that you can. So I will say more the better, uh, but obviously minimum requirement is gonna be 32 um, to, to uh, make sure that it runs smoothly. In terms of VRAM, uh, like your graphic card, I would say at least eight gigs, but that's on the super bottom end, okay? Like you gotta give it more. Like right now I have 64 gigs and if I have a couple of effects running, it still chokes. Um, so again, more the better. Because video cards come in handy, especially if you wanna um, throw on images in, on multiple screens, which as a colorist you will be doing. So like here, my setup, you know, let's just use this as an example. I got my GUI monitor, which is my a Apple XDR, which is a 6K monitor. So it needs a lot of juice from a video card to project an image on a 6K monitor. Then I'm using a professional Sony BVM here, which is my reference monitor, um, which has nothing to do with the graphic card because I'm rerouting it through an IO box, which is your input output device. Uh, and in my case, you know, it, it's the Blackmagic box. Then I'm routing a 4K uh, SDI connection to, so then I can have my monitor, you know, reference monitor set up here, which bypasses all the Mac profile display settings, or P if you're on the PC side, like any sort of like, you know, OS uh, color specifications that you have set up, it will bypass all of that. Then on the left side, I have ISO. This is basically like, it, it gives me an uh, a window to like what normal people would look at, right? Like not everybody's gonna be looking uh, at these images on a 5,000 or a $35,000 monitor. They'll probably be looking at something that's like more reasonable. So then ISO is there for that for me. Then I got LG OLED. Um, so LG OLED, ISO, um, Apple XDR are all connected through my video card, right? So this is what I'm trying to say. That's why you need a lot of juice um, for your video card to output to that many devices. And as a colorist, it's sort of like a requirement for you to do that. Like, you know, to make sure that it doesn't only look good on this monitor, but it looks good on all of them. And that the sum of that is like what a good image is because it don't matter, right? Like, I mean, you can look at it on your Android, something that I graded, or I can look at it on my Apple device and it should still look good, regardless of the color shift that's happening. Google Pixel tends to run really warm. iPad turns to run a little bit, you know, on the cooler side. And there, so there is no happy medium. None of those devices are, you know, perfectly calibrated and you have to go through a lot to get them calibrated. So you wanna make sure that when you're grading, that you're just kind of like, you know, making sure everything looks good on all those screens. So that's a big block, long-winded answer. But what I'm trying to say is that you need a good graphic card. In terms of uh, your storage, you need a fast storage. That's another thing that a lot of people miss out on. They juice up on their memory, their their graphic card, their processor, and then they are, they're running everything on a really slow hard drive. That is a silent killer, okay? Like, y you trust me, you need a really good hard drive to push all that content through. And I'm talking about read and write, but mostly read. You need a... Um, your online drive to be able to read, you know, at, at least I will say over six or 700 mega, megabytes per second, not even megabits, megabytes per second. And that is important because 
So right now, even your phone is shooting a 4K content. So for it to play it back smoothly after you apply tons of nodes and adjustments, um, your drive needs to be running at minimum, like I said, five to 600 megabytes per second. My online drive uh, is uh, built with the M.2 uh, NVMEs. So I have four of those, two terabyte each, eight terabyte in a high point uh, RAID controller, which is plugged straight into my Mac Pro and is giving me about 8,000 megabytes read and write. So I can basically run multiple 8K streams without any issues. So, you know, you obviously don't need that. that that's ridiculous. That's sort of like future-proofing myself. But I just wanted that legroom that where I never have to worry about it. But like I said, minimum requirement for you is going to be five to 600 megabytes per second. Read and write. Um, so th that's what you need, whether you're on a PC side or Mac. All right, next question. How to avoid overgrading? So I think, you know, what somebody is trying to say is like, you know, it, it, when when is it too much? And I think that's going to come with experience. So I would rather you overgrade than not grade enough. Okay. That said, avoid getting too deep into specific shots, right? Like, so what happens is that what an amateur will do when he gets a shot like this is that an amateur will start creating windows. So he'll create a window around my face and start adding some contrast and then he'll create another window like a vignette and like pull everything down around me and then he'll go in there and he'll cool off the background and then like he will start on a granular level and then expand. Whereas you have to do the opposite. What's up, Jake? What's going on, brother? You have to do the opposite. So you have to start really big and then kind of narrow down, right? So like what I would do in this case is I would go, okay, so first of all, the white balance of this shot, it's super warm. So that's just not right. This is not what my room looks like. I mean, it's this is supposed to be gray. It's not supposed to be like whatever, you know, awful thing is happening here. It's like brown. So I would go in and I would just start with like my printer lights and I'll take out all that yellow. So like in my head, I know right now, like if I'm on my printer lights, it's like subtract two yellow or, or yeah, subtract two yellow. So boom, boom, two taps, gone. So like now it's already looking way better. So like as soon as that happens, I'm like, all right, now I can breathe. Then I go, I think the exposure is just kind of like my skin and every all the colors are looking thin, meaning like the midtones are kind of lifted. So I can do one or two things. I can bring the overall exposure down just a tiny bit, or I can just go under my midtones or my gamma and lift gamma gain and bring the gamma down a little bit. And as soon as I do that, my skin is gonna look a lot richer. The hoodie is gonna come out and look like what it looks like in real life. And all of a sudden, done, right? Like now at that point, I can do a vignette and bring down you know, the top so like the more focus is on me. But by doing those two quick things that I just like, over explained basically to you, I just went from like zero to 100 really fast and now I can just move on to the next shot or even better, I can like copy paste that sauce that I just created to all the shots in this room and they're gonna be in the same ballpark. So that's the sort of the mentality, you know, whereas an amateur will just overcomplicate everything. Um, so yeah, so that's the answer to that question. Next one is, do you think the new MacBook Pro display is good enough for grading? So Here's the thing, right? Like I, I don't have the new MacBook Pro, so I can't get in there and like know all of it. But based on what's on paper and what you know Apple is telling us, 
it looks like they're basically using the same screen as the Apple XDR, which is absolutely nuts. One million to one contrast ratio is the end all be all. Like that was the main reason why I even sold my Flanders Scientific DM240 in a heartbeat because the contrast ratio on that monitor, I believe was like 1300 to one or 1500 to one. 1500 to one to a million to a one, when you go to, to that difference and when you see it with your own eyes, you cannot unsee it. And the information that's embedded in that contrast and how much push and pull you can do and the nuance and the opportunities that you have to kind of do the contrast jiu-jitsu, you cannot do unless you have that capability to see, you know, into those deep shadows and into those highlights. So, this monitor, according to Apple, is supposed to have million to one contrast ratio. It's supposed to have thousand nits consistent, which, which means you can actually grade in HDR uh, 100% and you should be good um, on that screen. It's going to now determine on when I go under, so like on my Apple XDR display, what happens is that when I go in the settings and system preferences under monitors, it lets me choose these presets. So I can choose the HDR preset. I can choose the uh, Rec. 709 preset. So I really hope and wish and pray that they give us the same options that I get on my Apple XDR display on that MacBook Pro screen. So like if we get that, then I'm here to tell you 1000% it's gonna be more than capable for you to not just do a basic grading, but professional grading on a laptop, which is unreal. Do you listen to music when grading? So I'm in general just not a crazy, you know, listening to music kind of guy. I, I just, I don't really listen to a lot of music. I mean, I, I just, I listen to hip hop when I'm driving and I'm just like, you know, I, like I, I listen to stuff that has good beats. It gets me going. It just, it just like all of a sudden I start getting ideas and I just feel good and just, so for that reason, I would listen to you know, some amped music um, every now and then. But when I'm grading, most of the time, if I am listening to something, most of the time I'm just concentrating. I'm not listening to anything, which is uh, super weird because I feel like 100% of the color, you know, colors that I know, everybody like has their playlist and they listen to music while grading. Uh, me, if I'm going to listen to something, it'll probably be audible. I will be listening to a book and just in the background. And most of the time, a book that I've already you know heard before. So I will re-listen to it. So then it's sort of like a passive listening and I'm still focusing on what I'm doing. But then I'll catch those nuggets that I might have missed when I heard it like you know two years ago or something. So that's what I would usually do. Uh, do you see the finished image in your head before you start grading or uh, do you find it as you go? So this is an amazing question. Um, I think this, that's a really good question. But in my case, I wish I was that rain man who just kind of looked at something and just visioned it and knew exactly what it's going to turn out uh, to be. But I, for me, it's more of like a sketch. Like I have an idea where it's going to end up, but I don't know exactly like, you know, the hue on this couch where that hue is going to end up and like where my skin like I just I will have an idea right like that's why talking to your client and asking for samples and things like that uh, is so important so based on that I will just know like if somebody tells me you know this shot they go hey uh, you know give me a Sicario contrast here like I mean just keep everything like in the middle and like you know make sure nothing is crunchy and uh, 
go easy on the saturation. So like once I hear that, I have an idea how like it's going to end up looking sort of like pastel and like everything is going to live in the middle and there's going to be a lot of room on the shoulder and in the toe. So like I kind of get the idea what it's going to be, but I can't literally basically paint it for you and just say this is exactly 100% it's going to look like. So hopefully that's the you know answer that you were looking for. How do you know if you can go pro and stop practicing? So this question is, this question is, you know, I feel like it's kind of, thinking about it, it sounds crazy because any pro that I ever interviewed, whether it's Jill Bogdanovich or Stefan from Dark, anybody that interviewed that's a pro, they always said the same thing, which is, I can't stop learning. Like every single day I'm learning new things. I'm getting inspired by paintings. I'm getting inspired by just the view. Like, I mean, I'm getting inspired by the weather change. You know, it's fall and it's winter. And it's like, I'm inspired by everything that I'm seeing. And I feel like I just couldn't agree more. Same exact thing, right? Like, I mean, uh, eventually I'm going to do a video which is going to be like pro's reaction to, you know, Dune trailer. So like, how do I feel about like, you know, that trailer? It's, it blew me away, right? Like when I'm watching it, when I'm seeing the colors, like my jaw is on the floor. I'm just looking at it. I'm going, this is gorgeous. This is beautiful. This is amazing. Like how can somebody go there? Like how, how can somebody create that? Like how, where did they even come up with? Like, you know, what's the thought process? So then I start dissecting it, right? So like, I don't think if you're a true pro, you'll never stop learning that. The only way you know you will know that you're not a pro is if you think you know it all. So if you think that you know it all and you don't need to learn anything, that means you're not a pro. You're an amateur. You know, you're just compensating for something. Um, so <laughs> genuinely, that's that's all I can think of. Okay, Canon or Sony? So most of you guys already know I'm team Canon and I just feel like it's such a clean image, you know, right? right? Like, I mean, if you're shooting with the Cineline and if you get the option between... You know, C-Log 2 or C-Log 3, I will say C-Log 2 gives you a bit more dynamic range, but it's not necessarily better than C-Log 3. And what I mean by that is that if if a certain log profile gives you more dynamic range, it doesn't necessarily mean, uh, oh my God, I'm getting that many more stops. Because that means you get that many more stops if you shoot properly. All right? So like if C-Log 2 on paper is supposed to give me 15 stops of dynamic range, I have noticed that effectively you end up with like around 13 or 13.5 because the low end is super noisy in C-Log2, right? So unless you shoot right and you have everything properly lit, um, you're going to be cutting that one or one and a half stop at the bottom. So you're going to end up with like 13, 13.5, which is what C-Log3 says, right? Like C-Log3 is like supposed to give you around 13.5, which C-Log3 is a lot cleaner. It's easier to grade. So if you don't want to spend too much time grading, and if you're like, a, you know, you shoot your own stuff and you grade your own stuff, I will highly encourage you to go try C-Log3. It's going to be a lot faster, a lot easier from A to B, right? Whereas C-Log2, you have to do a lot like to, you know, clean up the image and then get there. Maybe you'll end up with a little bit more, but it's almost like, is it even worth it? Ari all day. So Nick said that, you know, yeah, 
Ari Alexa, I just couldn't agree more. That's it. Like, he basically summed it up. That's where you just drop the mic and start freaking running in the other direction. It's just, it's the ultimate end-all, be-all. I personally think Red is really good, too. Like, so that's the thing, Nick. Like, you know, I got to say, bro, Red is really good, too. I, I genuinely feel like getting a balanced shot on Red is easier than Ari. So somebody can just, like, somebody can fight me on it. But with my experience... Uh, Ari brings so much green embedded in their image, sort of like what, what happens when you work in ACES. As soon as you turn on ACES from like DaVinci White Gamut or non-managed you know, workflow, as soon as you go to ACES, all of a sudden everything is shifted toward green a little bit. Ari tends to do that a lot too. Like when you shoot on Ari Alexa and you bring your footage in, it's always that like lopsided on green and you have to tint, like tint it over to like compensate for it, to pull that out. Whereas I feel like with red, if you're shooting on 5600 Kelvin, lights are properly balanced, everything looks good, you bring it in, you do a proper conversion, done. Like you don't need to touch anything, it looks exactly how you saw it with your eyeballs and then you go from there. So um, I I don't know, I, I feel like red is really good. Ari is easy on your system, like Ari Alexa, even like before machines were as strong as they are today. Uh, you could just grade Ari Alexa footage on a 2014 laptop, no problem. Like a like a $1,200 laptop, you can grade a feature like that shot with Ari. So that right there, that what I just said is massive. If you think about that, you cannot do that with Red. You cannot do that with DJI 4D, the camera that just came out. You cannot do that. You cannot even do that with GoPro footage because. The, the more compressed the footage is, they come up with these codecs that are impossible for your processor to just process and play back seamlessly. Um, so Ari, like I said, you grab your grandma's laptop, throw on like, you know, the next Blade Runner that you're grading. I think you can do it. Uh, all right, let's move on. Do you recommend the new MacBook Pro or should I wait for the iMac Pro? So you guys already know for me, it's always going to be do your due diligence, but if you can get something right now, that that's the answer. Like, I don't care what's going to happen in March or April when uh, Apple comes out with the iMac Pro 1 Max, right? Like, I mean, or M1 Max. I don't care about that because I got clients right now. I got to feed my family right now. I got to pay my bills right now. So I don't care about what's gonna happen four months from now. I need to say yes to my clients right now, not in April or May. So the answer is always now. Like you have to seize the moment, get in, do the job, right? So you get the, so let's paint a picture. You spec out a machine that's five grand, MacBook Pro, you get it. From now to March, you make 25 grand like using that machine and working for your clients. iMac Pro comes out. You want to get iMac Pro. You try to sell your MacBook Pro. You know that, you know, Apple products like, you know, sustain their value. Like they're really good. Their resale value is always spot on. So you try to sell it. You lose five or 600 bucks. Do you think, think of like that five or 600 bucks as if you were renting a machine for four months and you only paid five to 600 bucks or let's just say worst case scenario, a thousand dollars, you lose a thousand bucks. You paid thousand dollars for to rent 
a badass machine for five months or four months that made you 25 grand. Is it worth it or not? Is it a good deal or not? So that's how you got to start thinking about these things. That's why it's not hard for me to make these decisions where I go, I'm going to pick up this monitor. That just makes no sense. It's more, it's more than five times what my first car was like, or six times. Like it's ridiculous. Like how expensive this is. How do you justify this panel? Right? But when you think about like how much money you can make and how much it can help you and you do the math and then if it pans out, you just go for it. You just don't question it. You go for it. All right. Next question. That's a good one. Dehancer or Resolve Film LUTs? So you guys have seen Jake and I, you know, going in tandem and putting out videos showing you guys different options, paid plugins, uh, free option, pros and cons to both. Um, this is what I'm going to say. Dehancer all the way compared to like Resolve Film LUTs, okay? And the answer is simple. You always want to build your grades that they're future-proof. So you can just flip, you know, flip a switch and you can turn it into, you know, DCI-P3 for projectors to put it in a movie theater. Or you can just flip a switch and get it to your Netflix-ready, you know, P3 D65, ST, you know, 2084, all that, right? Like you just have it ready to go. Just boom, one click and you're like, all right, we're good. Now I'm going to just do another trim, make a few changes. We're good to go. All right. You cannot do that with a Resolve Film LUTs because the max it gives you is, you know, Rec. 709 or DCI and they're both not HDR ready. So you will always be kind of, you will take your color gamut and you'll choke it to Rec. 709 you will never be open, able to open it up to like Rec 2020, truly. You can augment it and kind of fake it, but you cannot actually open it up to Rec 2020, okay? So Dehancer, all the way, man, I'm telling you. Uh, Look Designer is really good. Film Convert is good. And they can do a lot. Personally, like yesterday, I spent about two and a half, three hours. Genuinely took one shot and started a look from scratch and kept building it out, kept building it out, kept building it out using different tools. So I'm building it with Dehancer. I'm building it with, you know, Film Convert, and I'm building it with um, with uh, Look Designer. I tried to do it in a non-managed uh, color workflow. I did it in Asus, and I did it in DaVinci White Gamut. And I'm here to tell you, so far, this statement might change tomorrow because... These guys are super aggressive to make changes to their products. But as of today, I'm here to tell you that the cleanest results that I, you know, got, no matter which color management that I used, was um, Dehancer. So they're not paying me to say that. I just, I just feel like it's so clean. It, it handles it. Like, you know, you, like I said, I just flipped the switch. I went in rec 2020 and now all of a sudden I'm ready to like export it to Netflix. Like, and I'm looking at my colors and I'm like, okay, like nothing is breaking. It's holding it. Like it, it's a really, they did a, there's a lot that's going on in the back end. You know, their math is right. It pans out like regardless of, you know, what you're working in. So Dehancer gets a huge thumbs up for me. Yeah. So that's what I will say. All right. Next question. What's the best RAID storage? So RAID storage is very important for a couple of reasons. You guys never want to work straight from your uh, local drive, right? Because your operating system gets corrupted, 
you lost everything. So don't ever do that. Those are rookie mistakes. I've made them back in the day. Don't do it, right? So like, I also made a mistake before where, you know, I'm using a regular backup drive as my online drive. I'm talking about a long time ago, 2008, right? 2009. It's like, I'm using that as my online drive. It is the worst option. We already talked about it. You need a faster drive. So a good RAID storage that I will recommend, I will recommend two options. So the generic option is gonna be to go with G Technology, right? Like G Technology puts out really good stuff and they are pricey as hell. They're so expensive, it's ludicrous. It makes no sense, but they know what they're doing. Every agency, every big company that I work with, all G technology. You just walk in, boom, stacks on stacks, like just all G technology, right? So G tech puts out good, good quality uh, raids. You can look into their raids, especially with the Black Friday deals, you might be able to get lucky and find something really good. That said, my option always will be build your own. It's not hard at all, all right? You go online, you find an enclosure, just make sure that when you're researching for an enclosure, it gives you, like, what's the maximum uh, bandwidth that you can get before it throttles, all right? So it'll tell you. So let's just say I'm looking at, uh, you know, an enclosure um, for SSDs. I want to build an SSD RAID. So I can go online, look at the enclosure, and it'll say maximum throughput is 2,800 megabytes read and write. That's great. That's perfect. I buy that. I buy four SSDs and you can get a killer deal right now, like again, like with Black Friday and SSDs are so cheap now because now we're stepping into the world of M.2 NVMEs that are just supercharged. So regular SSDs are really cheap and way better option than a spinning drive. Spinning drive meaning a spinning, like it will, it's, it's, like, a, um, it's like a vinyl, right? It's like a record. It has to go, it has to spin to go and find whatever file you're looking for to get there from here to here, right? Like it has to spin and get there. Whereas when you're using a an SSD, it's all built on chip. So when you go from this to that point, it just in, you know, in a fraction of a second, it's there. So like it has never, it never has to think, which is why you will never hear it either. It's not spinning or none of that is happening. So that right there is, everything, okay? Like, so SSD raids are the way to go. You can build them for a fraction of the cost compared to like what you will pay for a ready-made one, you know, if you were to just go and buy it from G Technology. So I'll say slap four raids, right? Four terabyte each. You got 16 terabyte of storage. Now you can do a couple of different things. You can run it as Stripe, which will give you the most speed, right? Raid one, it'll give you the most speed. Um, or you can do, is it RAID 1 or RAID 0? Hold on, I gotta look it up. Like, I'm, I'm getting that mixed up. RAID 0 is, RAID 0 is Stripe. Okay, my bad. So you gotta do RAID 0 for, to get the most speed, which means it's gonna stack up the speed for all four drives. And that not, doesn't necessarily mean that if each drive is supposed to give you 500 megabytes read and write, it will be five times four. So it's never as simple as that. It's not like you're gonna get 2,000 uh, megabytes, but you will get like 1,000 or maybe 1,100 or like 900 megabytes read and write consistent in a, in a you know, RAID uh, scenario, which is ridiculously fast. Or you can do uh, RAID 5, 
Whereas OneDrive just basically takes the hit and you take it out. So instead of like now having 16 terabytes of storage, you'll have 12 terabyte of storage and then OneDrive will be dedicated for parity. Anything that happens, if something fails, if OneDrive is completely out, OneDrive goes bad, you will not lose anything. The OneDrive, you know, that was a spare will kick in until you hot swap it. You just replace the bad drive with a good one and then, you know, you just go from there. So... I'm telling you, like I, I geek out about like storage because I've made some serious mistakes back in the day and I'm nuts about it. Like my stuff, my main hard drive, my main online storage gets backed up to my G technology RAID and then which is much bigger but slower. And then from the G technology RAID, everything gets uh, backed up to my Synology every day and then all of that is being backed up on Dropbox at all times. And on Dropbox, the beautiful thing is that you have a version option. So just like Time Machine, you can click on it and restore something from like 14 days ago, right? So I'm working on Resolve. I upgraded my Resolve. All of a sudden, this project is supposed to go out today. The new version of Resolve is not cooperating. I need to like go a version back but now everything is cooked here in Resolve. What am I gonna do? Like, you know, how am I gonna go back? I can just like right click, like, you know, and just say, hey, take me back two days ago or a day ago. And then as soon as that happens, I can just go back, you know, install the older version of Resolve, open it up and it's like nothing ever happened, you know, and just go from there. So yeah, a lot, a lot of talk about storage, but I'm crazy about it and I feel like it it is important. Like you all should obsess over it because we take, like whether you're working with somebody else's footage, you know, they're putting so much faith in you. Um, whether you're working with your own stuff, if you shoot your stuff and then like, you know, work on it, just make sure they're stored in like seven different places and be organized about it. Because if you're not organized, that's another thing that I've done. When I wasn't organized, I just kept like duping everything and there were like 18 copies of everything, but I couldn't even find where one of them were because I was just like so disorganized. But when you're organized and you have the process down, it becomes very easy. Another question we have here is difference between Rec. 709 and Rec. 2020. So um, very soon I'm going to be doing a video on that. I'm just going to do a video on like what is Rec. 709 sort of thing. But I'm just going to give you the answer here, a short answer, which is Rec. 709 and Rec. 2020. Like Rec. 709 is a color gamut. Okay, it's basically if our eyes can see all these colors, right? Like from let's just say it's a wavelength, right? So like from here to here, if our eyes can see all these colors in between, then Rec. 709 is basically a color gamut inside of it, which means it can only see this many colors. So Rec. 709 is only restricted to seeing this many colors, whereas our eyes can see this many colors, okay? So Rec. 709 can only see this, is limited to that. Rec. 2020, on the other hand, is limited to this. All right, so let's just say we can still see more, but Rec. 2020 opened it up to here compared to like Rec. 709, which is this. So they're just color gamuts. It's, if you're working in Rec. Rec. 2020, you will need equipment that supports it so you can actually see, you know, what you're doing. And again, like I said, everything opens up, right? Like that's why when you watch something in HDR, we're just like, oh my God, this is the best thing I've ever seen. People make the mistake to mix HDR with... Um, People make the mistake to, you know, uh, talk about like HDR 
with 4K. Everybody just thinks that if something is in HDR, then it means it's 4K. That's not true. You can have 1080p footage or 720p footage, which could be HDR, right? Like resolution has nothing to do with the standard dynamic range or, you know, high dynamic range. Like, you know, the colors are different. Color gamut is different than resolution. So just remember that. They're two completely different things. Somebody just asked, like, when should you grade using ASUS? Uh, we were just discussing that. I was, I was talking to Nick about it yesterday. The thing is, you know, here's the thing, right? It's a lot of people just go ASUS or bust. It's not as simple as that. It's never as simple as that, okay? ASUS only if you're working on something where the entire pipeline was built around it. I don't even feel comfortable if I'm grading an ASUS and the VFX team comes to me and goes, hey man, give it to us. Like, tell me, what do I need to do? What's up, Frankie? Let's go, bro. If somebody comes to me and they just go, hey, we want to work in uh, ASUS, uh, you know, give us the lowdown. What do we need to do on the VFX, you know, end? I'm going to say, I don't know. That's your job. Like, you guys are running the VFX department. I'm not. I just know what's going to happen when you provide me the stuff that was done right, you know, on the VFX side. When it comes in, I know how to interpret it. So, like, Resolve sees it accurately and properly. But they still need to do all that work on their end. That's why it's never as easy or there is no, you know, end-all, be-all answer here where you just go, aces for everything, man. Like, best stuff is always greater than aces. It's just not true, okay? So that's as simple as that. The recent project that I worked on for Chris Howe, so that stuff that I was dealing with, it was shot on DJI 4D. DJI uh, or D-Log is not supported in ASUS, okay? So that is the prime example of when not to use ASUS. <clears throat> I'm working on this project and I'm like, okay, it's already out of the question. If I'm ever working with you know DJI footage, then in an ideal world, I don't want to start with that. I can use the you know DCTL and and somebody who you know, created a DCTL that does a proper, or they, in their mind, proper conversion to Rec. 709 and start off there. That is good, but if I were to use DaVinci Wide Gamut, which is almost as wide of a color space as ASUS, I should be fine. But now everything is done natively. Like, you know, Resolve already has a proper conversion workflow you know, in place for DJI, GoPro, and all these cameras. And this is all I'm trying to say. Like, you know, it all depends, man. Like, I mean, maybe if you're working on Alexa, sure, Asus is a good way to go. Like, when I was talking to Stefan from, you know, the, the colorist of Dark, he said, all things Asus. Like, you know, the, Asus is everything. And he's like, you know, I used Asus, um, you know, since season two. Season one, they work with non-managed. Um, color space and resolve and then you know going into season two they switched over to ASUS and he was like it was the ultimate game changer so it's great that it worked out for him but once again I can bring on another colorist who's gonna say eh, it's whatever like it, it you know it just depends for me um, and I was saying the same thing to Nick ASUS is like super heavy-handed like the contrast is like crazy pushed. It's just almost like somebody just took something and stretched it so much and colors and everything. And before ASUS 1.3, if you had like neon colors going on in, you know, or, you know, signs in the background like that has a blue light, it will just freak the F out. You have to go in a pre-clip 
um, you know, and, and then dial that back manually. Or you have to like, you know, drop a DCTL and then pull all those, you know, colors or put a gamut limiter or something like that. You have to do all those things, uh, which is just not fun. So, you know, with DaVinci White Gamut, you will never run into any of those issues. But all I'm saying is that it's going to come down to this. If you're working with Disney, you know, they're basically, everything is switched to Asus, right? Low-key is graded in Asus. Um, all the Marvel movies are graded in Asus. You know, Lion King is graded in Asus because it was like super VFX heavy. These guys are all Asus. So that's that. That doesn't mean that every other color space or if you use DaVinci White Gamut or anything else, it's garbage, right? There's going to be time and place for all of that. So that was an amazing question. Uh, can you do a video on Premiere to DaVinci to Premiere workflow? So here's the thing, and I'm just going to be very transparent with you guys. Anything that I have in my masterclass, I choose not to recreate those videos on my YouTube or free platforms. Why? Because it's just simply not fair to people that are paying to have that information in the course. That's why they got the course. And the main reason for anybody to get the course is to have information in a curated form, right? Like you can go on the internet and basically find an answer to anything, any problem that you have. But that's not necessarily the best way to spend your time learning. The best way to spend time learning is like, you know, having a curriculum, having a structured like, you know, environment where you can just go that, okay, I'm going to do this and I'm going to do that. I'm going to do that. And like all my answers or are here in one place and I can just go and refer back to it. Like if, if I need to. All right. So to answer your question here, um, it's in my master class. All right, so let's answer this. This is a good one too. <clears throat> Do you recommend grading in SDR or HDR? Also, why? Well, what's your recommend recommended calibration workflow? So two different questions, but I'm gonna attack the first one. Um, I personally, here's the thing. I genuinely like to grade in SDR first. So. The, the jury is kind of split on this, all right? A lot of people say grade in HDR in the biggest you know, space, and then it's really easy to just make the changes in SDR. The way my pipeline is set up, I grade in SDR because SDR is more challenging to grade than HDR. HDR is so opened. Like your shadow has, shadows have like so much information. Your highlights have so much information. It's really easy. Like I can do a good HDR grade with like three nodes. You don't even need to do windows and stuff because everything has so much information that the windows are just created automatically. Because when we see stuff with our own eyes, if you really think about it, I'm just like looking at the monitor and I'm looking around. When I look around, the contrast, the, the separation, everything is like so three-dimensional. Everything is just separated and it's just perfect. Like I don't necessarily in my eyes need to create vignettes and do all that. We got accustomed to doing that in SDR color space because once again, going back to like, it's only seeing this. It's just not, there's not enough there. Whereas with HDR, there's so much there. So in my experience, if I start with HDR, it's so easy to grade. When I go to SDR, I just go, oh my God, it just looks like crap. Like I, I, I got to do the usual, you know, 15 nodes, node tree to like, just get everything in place. So that's why I'm saying, and I did that with Chris house house video yesterday, uh, the, the DJI 4d video that I worked on. So like yesterday I went back into that video 
And I just like went to my ODT and just switched it from SDR to HDR as if I was going to submit this to Netflix. And boom, just one click. And I just play it through from start to finish. Everything is just like ready to go. It's it, like it was just as simple as that. Now I can go in and modify and kind of add the extra spice uh, for the HDR to take full advantage of it. But it was genuinely broadcast ready by just flipping the switch, just one button, just because of the way my note tree is set up. Uh, so I personally feel like SDR first, then HDR. But like I said, be, like the jury is always going to be split on that. Do you recommend to color grade in DaVinci instead of uh, in Premiere? Absolutely. And the reason is simple. I mean, I have nothing against Adobe. I think, you know, they're, they're making all the right moves, uh, headed in the right direction. There's absolutely nothing wrong with it. But it's just not a finishing tool. You know, it's just not a finishing tool. Like Resolve is a finishing tool first. So now Resolve came a long way when it comes to their edit page, okay? Uh, 2012, 2011, forget about it. Like it just, it, it just, it wasn't meant for that. Color grading was the main thing. But today, I literally think that it took the best out of Avid, it took the best out of uh, Final Cut 10, it took the best out of Premiere, and it just like, boom, put it all in one package and it is robust, it is solid. And then on top of it, it has a color page and it's known for color grading. I mean, it's like, here's the thing, right? If money is no object and you want the best of the best, why would you go for a knockoff? And once again, that's not to take a shot at Premiere, but tell me one movie or one high-end commercial graded in Premiere. You just cannot do that. So 90% of that stuff is graded in Resolve. So then why even waste your time learning a software that is just going to do a half-assed job anyways. Why not just go to the source and learn the right way and use the tool that's used by all the big players, right? Uh, do you recommend DaVinci micro panel or mini panel? So mini panel all the way because come on, like Resolve just went nuts. They just dropped the price of their mini panel from $29.99, so basically three grand to two grand. Getting that is so much panel for the money. For $2,000, what you get, and again, if you get that panel and get two stream decks, you know, like Mixing Light did a whole thing about it, right? Like, so you have the main panel. Basically, they cha challenged the advanced panel. They said, like, you can take the mini panel, couple of stream decks, and you don't need a big panel, which I disagree with. I 100% disagree with that. I feel like, that means they don't know, they haven't really used the advanced panel how it's supposed to be used. But that said, taking the mini panel and couple of advanced uh, or a couple of stream decks do take that thing to like a $15,000 panel. Like I'm not joking. So like you're paying $2,000 for a panel that is basically giving you something that uh, you should be paying six or seven times more. So it's a, absolutely a steal. I feel like there's no comparison between the micro or the mini. If you can afford it, mini panel all the way. Recommendations for beginning colorists uh, or beginner colorists in DaVinci, which videos should I start out with? Go on my YouTube channel, click on the playlist and go through color grading basics. That series, like that playlist, start to finish, just eat it up. 
But on that note, guys, this was so much fun. You guys are so awesome. Thank you so much for all the questions. This is so fun that I feel like we should do this more often. Just the Q&A and answering your guys' questions. Uh, because it's, I like this more. This is, this is a two-way street. You know, it's just an open dialogue and uh, so much more fun. But on that note, I will see you guys um, hopefully soon. Until next time. Peace. And guys, thank you so much for sticking around till the end. Please leave a five-star review and make sure you're following this channel. I will see you in the next episode.